This is Matthew Stepanek. And this is Rayanne Haynes. Welcome to Let's Get Lit, the Drunk Poetry Podcast. So in Let's Get Lit, uh, in every episode, we're going to be sitting down with a featured poet of um, stature and someone that we admire who's either local to Edmonton or Western Canada and who's just doing really cool stuff that um, we want to talk to and that we yeah. think our listeners will want to uh, hear about. So um, the other um, element of the show is that we will also be partaking in a lot of wine. We will. Um, while we interview someone. Uh, we're already one glass in. One glass. And... You know, at least we'll probably be two more glasses afterwards as we kind of go on. Yes. Um, and so hopefully kind of as we get a little bit more drunker and talk more about poetry, we'll be able to come, you know, still maintain our composure as we work towards some sort of Bakian truth. And I think that hopefully sounds like a lot of fun to everybody who's here and everybody who's listening. Um, and also this podcast is being filmed right now, or filmed, uh, recorded. Recorded. This recorded. Pod, this podcast We're not is vlogging being, yet. Yeah. This podcast is being recorded at the McLuhan House, uh, which is um, Marshall McLuhan's childhood home, uh, the famous uh, media critic who yes. you should probably Google after because I don't have any facts right now. Um, so f- uh, for those of you who don't know me, um, I am the editor of Glass Buffalo Magazine and the poetry editor for 18 Bridges um, and also a freelance writer and man about town. And uh, Rayanne, do you want to talk a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. So I am Rayanne Haynes. I'm the executive director of the Edmonton Poetry Festival and also a poet. I have two, um, two collections of poetry currently published. You know, when you say that, I also forgot to mention that I have a book. And oh. my publisher, this happens a lot where someone yes. will ask me if I have a book and I completely forget that right. it happens. So, like, we should name titles. Okay, we'll too. name our books. Okay. So, my, my poetry collection is called Stain with the Colors of Sunday Morning and it's put out by Inanna Publications. Yeah. And my book is called Project Compass and it's written with three other authors. And Macho Books published it last fall in 2017. And it's really good. Yeah, and, and so are yours, too. Well, thank you. Yeah, there we go. Oh, this is now, we don't even know. There is a third person in the room who is just watching us, you know, yeah, flatter each other. Yeah, and she's the guest of honor. Yeah, so we should probably get to introducing her. So um, welcome, Lisa Martin, thank who is you. just about to take a sip of wine. But I won't make you talk. Just keep drinking. Um, and so Lisa is an award-winning poet, essayist, and editor. And she's the author of One Crow Sorrow and co-editor of How to Expect What You're Not Expecting, Stories of Pregnancy, Parenthood, and Loss. Mm-hmm. Her first book won the Stephen G. Stephenson Award for Poetry, and her second book we'll talk a lot about in this podcast, uh, Believing is Not the Same as Being Saved, was also up for that award and the Robert Croach City, Robert Croach City of Edmonton Book Prize. Mm-hmm. She's also won a National Magazine Award for Personal Journalism back in 2012, and she is currently a Vanier Scholar in the Department of English and Film Studies at the University of Alberta. So we're very lucky to have an incredibly intelligent and well-read poet with us today. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> <laughs> We're hoping to make this fun for you. It's, it's pretty fun already. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to introduce uh, our wine. So one of the things that we're doing with this podcast is we are... The wine that we're drinking isn't just, you know, that we're drinking wine. We're actually drinking a wine that we have picked that we think fits the poet's personality that we're, we're talking to. Um, and after Matthew and I went through a few... Um, back and forth discussions we picked um, the wine Flat Roof Manor which is a Pinot Grigio and we thought that it fit Lisa's personality incredibly well so Pinot Grigio is a zesty white wine that is as refreshing as a cold glass of lemonade on a hot day (laughs) (laughs) Uh, this particular wine is a pale yellow with a hint of green in color floral pear and citrus aromas uh, it has a light body, uh, green apple and lemon flavors, and a refreshing finish. Uh, one fun fact about the Pinot Grigio is that many people believe it originated in Italy, but it was actually born, like many popular grapes of the world, in France, where it's known as the Pinot Gris. 
and it's thought to be a mutation of the red grape Pinot Noir, and its skins are not green like other grapes, but have a grayish blue hue, and hence the name. So like the wine, uh, see this is where we get to embarrass Lisa. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> like the wine, uh, I've always felt that Lisa is crisp and intelligent. <laughs> I've always thought, I said this to her earlier, that I feel like her color is the color of, of a green uh, spring. She is, has a light warmth that is kind and quiet and a profound sense of character and humor. Her new poetry collection explores life and death, love and loss, faith and doubt, joy and sorrow. And as we find with the Pinot Grigio grape, in her latest collection, readers will find a range of moods, tones, and subjects, as well as both traditional and contemporary forms, from sonnets to prose poems. It's a collection imbued with the light of an enduring, if troubled, faith. And I think that uh, we're honored to be able to speak with her today, and I hope she likes her wine. Mm -hmm. I'm enjoying it quite a bit yeah. so far. <laughs> Oh, and our tech this evening is also raising his hand, saying he's out of wine. So yeah. our sound guy is uh, Doug Haynes. He's our producer slash tech slash sound guy. He's now walking. <laughs> he's walking away to go get the other bottle of wine. So we're going to try to come at poetry a little bit differently than um, other people do, or the way that it's talked about in different areas and um, mm -hmm. we just kind of want um, people to appreciate the poet more for you you know disclaimer the media disclaimer oh. I have to, we have to talk about the media disclaimer um, of that we both know Lisa yes we relatively do. personally and so we think that Lisa is also a great person yes uh, and so we kind of want people to listen to this podcast and be like oh look how cool Lisa is I wish I could be her best friend <laughs> right but you can't you can't because... trying to get me a date yeah oh. also yeah like I felt like reading the wine description was a little bit like reading like a dating profile well... for you anyway so Lisa how <laughs> Let's are bring you this back in I'm Doing very well, Matthew. Thank you. Yes, yeah. Yeah, as you can hear. Yeah. <laughs> you sound you sound great right now. Um, is there anything exciting on the horizon for you in terms of projects or things that you're mm. kind of working on right now? Yeah, I've just finished a novel that mm. took me about twelve years to write. Oh so, wow! Hmm, just finished the the last revision that I've gone through and done, and it feels finished to me. So. If I find a publisher for it, then I'm sure they will want me to do more work. But I've definitely wow. reached the point where if all I did was put it in a drawer, I would feel like I had satisfied myself. So that's that's exciting. And it's exciting to think about, exciting and terrifying to think about the possibility of somebody reading that because yeah. everybody knows my poetry, but this has been a significant part of what I've been doing for the last 12 years. So mm -hmm. yeah. to get to the point of sharing that will be significant. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. It's a huge, a huge undertaking. Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah. yeah. And I started writing that novel right before getting pregnant for the first time, which is about mm. the worst possible time to change from writing poetry to writing right. something long form. So, yeah. Do you think that played mm. into how long it took? For sure. Yeah. I had yeah. three pregnancies and two babies and a divorce. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I did it. So that feels like a feat. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Like kind of like one of those mud races. People throw mud at you. you running. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I've heard about those and like the, the color ones too, where at the very end you're just blasted. I feel like, like that's very unhealthy. To get a bunch of ink sprayed on you? Yeah. I probably. feel like, how do you, I mean, I don't think I would do it. No, I probably wouldn't. It's if you very had asthma, that would be really bad for you. Hopefully they tell people before that, but it's just a very millennial thing to do but the mud one I actually didn't know they slung mud I think you. I made that up I think that's a hybrid <laughs> of the color race where they legitimately throw color at you and a different race where it was a mud. metaphor it was a, a metaphor, metaphor. Oh. thank you for that yeah what? what's that no um well, it's still like kind of interesting because I've seen pictures of people posting stuff where they're like running through mud or like doing those like mud. Well, there is a mud stuff. race. Yeah, yeah. And I think just... it's called the mud race. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It is. I actually want to do it actually. And I'm curious to know if like you know if someone's ahead, you know if they someone that you know was behind like it can just pick up mud and start throwing it at people. I think I don't think they can. 
But I do want to mention that we do have some lovely uh, beet chips that we're eating, which were selected by Lisa as one of her favorite snacks. And also, I uh, made a hummus. You made a beautiful homemade hummus. Homemade hummus. Which I'm still in awe of. It's fabulous. So we have a Pinot Grigio wine, a beet chip, a homemade hummus, and an exceptional poet. It's a pretty special night. It's a good night. Yeah. Good night for these things. We have yeah. three exceptional poets. So Aww. That's a special night. That's nice. So it's not about us. No. You know, we're going to talk <laughs> a lot. We're going to talk a lot, but it's really not. And we'll mention yes. our books every time that we do a podcast. It's not about us. No. <laughs> it's not about us. <laughs> uh, uh, All right. Beautiful. Back on track. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at different questions that I can maybe yeah, ask you we, about. Um, yeah. What's something fun for you? Is there a funny thing that happened to you lately that you can tell us a story about? Hmm. <laughs> Without filtering. <laughs> you can, yeah, don't filter. Uh, I don't know. I'll think about that one. I'll, I'll let it percolate. You okay. percolate on that one. Okay, percolate okay. it. Um, how about we just talk about what's your sign? Since this is a I'm a Scorpio. Scorpio. I'm a Scorpio. That's why I relate to you. Scorpio is like I feel like I'm right in the center of Scorpio. And do you mm. are you do you know your uh, Myers Briggs type? Yes. yes. What what are your Myers Briggs types? Okay, is that where you're green or gold? No, no. that's a different thing. That's okay, the, I don't know my Myers Briggs. I know I'm a gold. I'm either the, the the planner or something. Like it's like INFP or like INTP. Oh. Like it's like it's between those oh. two. <clears throat> and like I could even be getting it wrong. Like I'd have to oh. look it up. I'm but. an INFP, and I, I shouldn't say this on the radio, because okay. now people will know, but I'm right in the middle of this type, and I actually am so interested in personality typology that I wrote my next book of poetry, which I'm oh. working on now, has a 16 sonnet series that is 16 sonnets, one for each of the Myers-Briggs Ooh. types. <laughs> this is a long poem called Typology. I have to go find my... I know that I've done the Myers-Briggs. I know that I have, but I don't remember what it said. Because I'm all about being a Scorpio. I don't care what any other thing says about me. Yes. Yeah. The Myers-Briggs sort of helps. And it's like a big thing for like... I feel like dating is either everyone's talking about their horoscopes or they're talking about their Myers-Briggs. Really? But then I don't know how to like connect the Hmm. two. Because like it's like there's 16 personality types. Like it's easier to do a horoscope because there's 12. And so you or less. And or you, less. You actually don't really have to do anything. You just know your birthday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so do you relate more to your to Myers-Briggs, Myers-Briggs or, totally, your, yeah. or your horse? Myers-Briggs. No. I feel like Myers-Briggs became important to me at a moment where I was just very belatedly discovering how different people are, how mm. different personality types are. So I had a girlfriend who's like an amazing human and an artist and a poet. And she and I were like sort of at loggerheads and I thought I need to I need to understand this person because I love her and so I I hmm. learned all about her Myers-Briggs type <laughs> and it made me better able to be a friend to her it's kind wow. of amazing I went really far into it there's this um this website that's called personality junkie where it's a psychologist who does kind of deep dives into Myers-Briggs typology okay, so, I'm gonna and, I'm actually gonna google that yeah <laughs> yeah you can so, make notes of all I am yeah. I'm making notes yeah and then I can send you your your sonnet after after this. <gasps> I would really? love. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so I need yeah. to know my Myers Briggs in order to have access to one of your sonnets. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. the password. Yeah. It's like to send her four letters. I know. I'm just then... gonna send. I'm gonna send her an email with the, yeah, with the four code. letters of my. And that's Myers it. Briggs. That's all that kind okay. of comes out. But I love. I it's just want to. It's a really cool idea for for it's kind a poetry of a fun book. series. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. feel like when I read that, I'll finally understand all the Who different Myers Briggs, all the Myers Briggs things. So yeah, like I oh. like I get it, and like I see two different things that I usually can be between. But I think the Lisa sonnet will kind of break it. But <laughs> I want to make a comment because I feel like that's a your story about your girlfriend is just like a very academic way of showing care where it's like I'm going to research your personality type and then this is how I will know you and be better able to interact and like yeah, I, yes. I, I, I'm marking it. Vanier scholar over there. Yeah. So what kind of blows my mind about it is that I needed to have this sort of like typology, like 16 types to discover that they're so, like the people are wired so fundamentally yes. differently from each other. I don't know if it's because I was a twin that I, like maybe that's oh. the source of the original fallacy, mm. thinking that you're similar to other people, you know, mm. because you grow up and come of age with somebody to whom you are so very similar. 
Because I have another friend who's like very into horoscopes and she's a twin too. And um, I've always been like, have you read stuff? I'm like, I feel like there's no talk of like what it means to be a twin and have the same sign, but still have these very different personalities. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like putting out that request into the world where we like kind of like study twins and horoscopes because like there's still like a different like you know because it can come down to the the minute that you're born and how you know yes. the sky can like kind of change in those moments but yeah like I think you just have to pay a lot of money to get a very detailed personality chart for yourself you do, based on that moment what I found the most fascinating about this was the idea from this psychologist who runs a personality junkie website yeah <clears throat> that everybody has sort of like based on your per- who, what personality type you've grown into you have different ways of making decisions that for you are the most efficient. Mm-hmm. And so it's like intelligence is structured differently for different people. So if you make your decisions by thinking them through, or if you make your decisions by feeling them through, mm-hmm. if you're trying to get someone else who is a feeler when you're a thinker to make a decision in the way that you do, you are like basically being an aggressor, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like because that person, that's not the way that they, that they sort of, produce the information to their mm-hmm. frontal lobes it's not the pathway so I find that totally fascinating it's very it is yeah. it's incredibly fascinating yeah yeah so a question then with your different personality type poems mm-hmm. can you make any personality type appreciate a poem mm-hmm. like can you actually write a poem for that every personality type would enjoy reading that's such an interesting yeah. idea I've never thought of that but that would be an interesting thing to try to do wouldn't mm-hmm. it because, yeah, because, like, I'm thinking about, like, yeah, yeah. The, the connection of here's a poem that's more empathetic and mm-hmm. about feeling and other things. Not to, like, yeah take your poetry project, which also sounds amazing. But it's, yours is way yeah, better. Yeah, that's still her <laughs> No, but, but it, I mean, honestly, I feel like yours is better in this way that it it's actually making space for those types in a different way. Like, all of my, let's be honest, all my 16 poems are INFP poems about <laughs> the other types. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fair too, because you okay. just you gotta like you gotta stamp your personality yes. too. Because like I mean yes. you're and, and then like maybe, And you're a Scorpio. Yeah. <laughs> let's not let's not stray too far from yeah. reminders of that. One last thing on this subject. <laughs> <laughs> if, apparently if you like under stress, you kind of were this what this psychologist theorizes is that when you under when you're under stress, each personality type sort of tries to revert to its non to its least effective strategies so really? like for example INFPs under pressure under stress try to think their way out mm-hmm. and so it's now become a kind of sign mm-hmm. for me that if I'm getting really like if I'm thinking really really hard about how to solve something it's like a tip off to me like oh I'm stressed that's not going to solve it I need to like come back into, into my body and my emotions body. yeah totally um I feel like we should have a poem oh yeah yeah I think uh Lisa can lead us into that. So yes. we have her book. We have her book. Just for the record, Lisa did not bring a copy. You didn't of bring her a book? copy. You know, I, I okay. just have it in my bag, so it was kind of like, so it didn't look like I was bringing a copy. But, but what I if we had like a live copy. audience that you needed to sell copies in front of? Them? Right. That was like a surprise. We don't, but we could in the future. Perhaps you know what? Do that. Like now, since you I've do been have heckled, it. Since yeah. I've been heckled, I should show you. I even brought a copy of my first book. Oh, <laughs> which. So. We don't have. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to. Once I had been heckled, I had to defend myself. Yeah. And now we need yeah. to defend ourselves. Yeah. So, um, Lisa, why don't you start us off like um, with the title poem yes. in your collection? Yes, which mm-hmm. I have to say before you read this poem, how incredibly um, beautiful it is. Mm-hmm. Beautiful Thank isn't you. even the right word, but it really moved me in ways that I wasn't expecting or prepared for when I read it and um, I've had to read it to other people just to say you need to you need to sit down and listen to this so I may I feel very honored to be sitting across from you and hearing you read it thank you so much believing is not the same as being saved The summer I was 15, a girl at my church camp fell from the high rock where she'd been lying in the sun. I heard the news on the phone, which rang in a room where I was trying to die without technically killing myself. It was an age at which much of what we did passed as pleasure, but was actually terror. The girl who fell punctured the room with a question. 
Is this really what you want? Her scream loud enough to travel an hour's hike away to where the tanned, shirtless boys counselor dressing by the fire recognized its message. He ran the entire distance in bare feet, a pair of worn shorts, sweat rising to the surface. He was a teenager himself, each footfall bearing him toward the absolute far edge of youth, strength. He gathered her in his arms, carried her body to camp despite everything. He ran even then, though what compelled him had altered, though his muscles changed, became the animal necessity we need to get through. Her death cradled to him like the child of his own he would one day hold and no doubt love. The news came in the room where I sat and then went. And did I gain courage? I knew the exact quality of light on the surface of that rock. Each night at camp the year before, I'd walked silent amidst the roving beams of flashlights on the same trail of mulch, moss, rock, not knowing the choice I would one day run toward, then irrevocably turn from. After that, I absorbed air, knowledge like dew, testing God against all better judgment. I started thinking that summer of cedar bark and stones, the texture of the path beneath the feet of the boys' counselor as he ran. I believe he felt everything, carrying her death and love with his body as only the living can. I flicked off a switch that summer as I walked. I wanted to understand darkness, the quality of my heart, not light, but spark. Even then, the path I was on extended far past the limit suggested by the way the path curved gently toward the bright fire, voices singing softly, in darkness not inflected yet with the cry of her voice falling impossible through air that couldn't catch her. Even now, what I want most isn't to walk past that song into knowledge. Believe me, I want to sing despite everything. I want to believe we all could be saved. Mm. It's so powerful. There's so much to think about. Did you hear how loud the birds all of a sudden got while yeah. I was reading? It was amazing in the I thunder. Some birds. I have to say the, the lines... Um, about the, the boys' counselor, how he was a teenager himself, and um, that he ran even then, though what compelled him had altered, though his muscles changed, became the animal necessity we need to get through. I just mm -hmm. was so... Uh, I don't even know how to express those lines and how they affected mm -hmm. me. Um, thinking of that young man carrying mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. that young girl becoming a man in that moment yeah yeah you know mm -hmm. having been completely altered in that yes. moment, and yet carrying through yeah and you, the way you wrote it is incredibly powerful in its in its simplest simple description you know thank you yeah. I think that's partly why I wanted to give him an imaginary child you know mm -hmm. like I wanted to yes. kind of in some way sort of make that act of running and attempting to rescue and failing to rescue and then mm -hmm. continuing to run that yeah. what that sort of what that continuing to run is about I yeah. wanted to kind of honor that as a kind of I don't know thing that is enough like something that can make life keep going, keep going. that you can run because you're honoring something even when something is futile mm -hmm. or something but one, I wonder, too, if there's also that imagined space, too, where him in that moment holding that body and maybe these, these are the things that he would imagine mm -hmm. because it's something that he's 
taught to imagine and like there's this idea that like this is something else that I should be saving and trying to save mm, that's um, interesting mm. yeah it's so it's it's so well done mm, thank you yeah this was one of those poems that just took forever to get right done I had a draft mm, of oh. it for really? years that I was working on yeah and I can remember um, pulling it out one fall and and really intensively working on it I was getting my sister to read it for me which I've I think I've only ever done with this one poem where I really like pushed her to edit for me. She'll always read for me. And it just, it, yeah, eventually came, but it was, it was one that wasn't working for a long time. And I think that's just such an interesting thing about poetry that you yes. can end up with something that lands after so much struggle to get it yes. into a form that is, that is working. Do you remember some of the struggles or the ways that you worked through or I think some of the was, other yeah I think it was a more originally the, the original draft of it was a bit more um, generalized it wasn't so much about the specific incident mm-hmm. it was that was one incident among a few mm-hmm. and so there's a kind of when I got to the point that and to be honest with you I really don't think I could have written this poem without laboring in it with, with yes. great suffering over the novel I think that it was as I learned things about narrative this became a narrative poem instead of yes. a, a lyric poem. Um, well, why don't we talk a little bit about then about you know these poems that take a while and also right. collections that take a while. And I think you had a really good point that you wanted to bring up that you wanted to ask. Yeah, yeah. Lisa I mean, about. I... Um, oh, we're going to pour some more wine as we're asking <laughs> these questions. So... I mean, Lisa, we, we had you um, read at the Edmonton Poetry Festival, and um, I think one of the things that you had said even at that point, and you've said before about this book, probably at your book launch, is that it took you 10 years to write this book, and that you wanted to write a slow book mm-hmm. after, the, after your first collection. Mm-hmm. So can you talk to us a little bit more about that? So, you know, did you know at year two that you were writing a slow book or did you know at year seven that these things that you had been writing um, and experiencing were were going to become a collection? What did, what did that process feel like for you? I had that sense really early on and I think it's, um, my first book I wrote very quickly. I wrote most of the poems in under a year and the context was, um, the first poems were written at the end of my mom having cancer, and then I wrote the rest of them in within the first year after she died, with the, with the exception of a handful of poems. And there I had the feeling that I was kind of harvesting work I'd done over a lifetime, because my dad died when I was eight of brain cancer, and then when I was 23, my mom was diagnosed with brain cancer. And so mm-hmm. it was like, the experience was like I'd been thinking about grief my whole life. I had been processing the images my entire life and all of a sudden I just was ready to write them as an adult I was ready to pull out as an adult what I had done as a child emotionally and so I think I had the sense after I did that very fast work and very intense work that there just wouldn't be enough to give a reader in what I had Mm -hmm. next so I was writing some things about becoming a parent Mm -hmm. and I just at the beginning of I have a poem in here called um um learning to speak and not to speak. That's about my daughter learning language and, and me learning as a poet when I'm, I'm not ready to say something yet. Mm. And um, I really was, I didn't have a voice around motherhood for a long time because it was so new. And I remember at that time comparing it to what I knew about death and loss when my mom died. Yeah. And so I think there's a way that I'm quite sure for me as a poet so much of my work precedes the, the time of getting it down on the page. Most of my work is that sort of deeper work of just living through and trying to understand at, at the kind of ground level so that you know, other poets are doing different kinds of things. For me, that's what I'm doing. And so I think I just had the sense early that I didn't want to give a book next that would be a little bit interesting. I mean, maybe right. this is still a little bit interesting for some people. But I There's wanted to try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to write a boring book. <laughs> I wanted to try to to get to the end of a long thought. Are there things that happened in the last ten years that maybe will be used elsewhere or like later kind of, on for sure? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. absolutely. So there are some poems. Um, 
that I'm revising now for this new manuscript, the third collection that I wrote during this 10-year period that never sort of just didn't quite break into the realm of a finished poem. Mm -hmm. And now I feel like they might. So I'm working on some of those. Yeah. Um, One of the things that Matthew and I have both talked about is... um, the vulnerability in your mm. in your poetry and in your sharing of it. Um, how does it feel to be vulnerable, that mm-hmm. vulnerable with the reader? And I mean, when you're writing it, it's it's mm. a different kind of vulnerability as to when you're sharing it. Yeah. And can you maybe share with us a little bit about those differences for you? Yeah, I think that's such an interesting question. I think I had no idea until... I had published one crossover and had to read from it over and over again. What a liability it was to only have sad moments. <laughs> so I managed at some point. I got so tired of like just being such a downer. <laughs> I mean, you could always there were always people who would love it, but in a in a big group, it's not going to be the majority. <laughs> Particularly if you're reading right after someone who's quite funny, it's just yes. not people's favorite thing to do on the whole. And so so yeah. So I think that I learned something about what that what that vulnerability that exists when you're writing, how that translates to sharing the work with others. I learned something about that through the first book. And with this book, there's still so much vulnerability inside of it, but I think I'm much more aware as a writer of the reader. The One Cross Row, I really wrote it for myself. I mean, I, I was aware of a reader. I was trying to craft something that was um, that that someone was going to think was good. I, was, I had been in a lot of creative writing workshops, so I had a, a big army of like not very nice critics <laughs> I wanted to make sure my work was good enough for so I was thinking about it at the level of craft but I don't think I was thinking I don't know I think I don't think I was thinking widely enough about a reader like I was thinking about somebody losing somebody and what that reader what that reader might need but that I think with, one reader yeah mm-hmm. with believing is not the same as being safe it's like I've had my Myers-Briggs moment <laughs> yeah. now I know there are many readers <laughs> 16 to be that. Yeah. <laughs> For a poetry collection, that's a, that's a jackpot. At least 16, yeah, you're, you're totally right. If you could get one of every type for a collection, you would be like probably in the, in the minority. Wow. But yeah, so I think this book is much more interested in readers than the first hmm. book was. And so the vulnerability, I think, is maybe... Um, a little, and I mean, I'm more of an adult. I public, I finished right. most of those poems by the time I was 24 in one cross row. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So I, when I read that book, I notice that I'm young. Right. Yeah. And yeah. there are things that I know, but there, there's a different way that you, I don't know, carry your vulnerability yes. when you're older. Um. Well, maybe she, maybe she should read us the, the yeah, light, the light poem. Yeah, let's, let's have a little poetry break. All right. Poetry break. Let's do it. Everybody take a drink. It's like a, <laughs> we can have the body break. <laughs> poetry such a good break. Idea. Wait, am I, I love it. will I be charged just for like a bad humming of it? I don't know. <laughs> no, but we could do something like that. Yeah. Poetry break. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Absolutely. That's All right. a idea. Oh, that's water being poured. <laughs> I know it's the water don't announce the wine okay now stop that <laughs> like that you're about to read this poem and you're like trying not to laugh and it's this like really, no no. this is really I feel like the, the the me that wrote this poem would be very glad to know that I'm cracking up a bit too much to read it right now perfect love it I actually love it lightening up I say I'm trying to practice laughing, lightening up, that it feels a bit grim, like Malvolio folding himself in the only shape he believed Olivia would love. When he found out it was all a joke, he hung his head. Even after retaliation turns grave, the audience keeps laughing. Many years ago in the cheap theater, I saw fear and loathing in Las Vegas, surrounded by merriment. As the film developed, laughter intensified, while I shuddered with recognition. What is the nature of being human, we are prone to asking. Sometimes implication precedes understanding, but the latter does not always follow. We are only light relative 
to what surrounds us, dark by the same measure. Shadows are always lengthening, except when the sun is highest at midday. Then darkness coils beneath its object, tries to disappear. Mm. Yeah. Here's the pause. <laughs> there is the pause. We are only light relative to what surrounds us, dark by the same nature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I had written something down. Do I have my notes about, you know, about, we talked about these moments, all these moments and more speak to the heart of a life, a telling of a loss. And I really found that I experienced that in all of your poems. Mm -hmm. Every poem has a moment, mm -hmm. you know, that has just brings me into it. And mm -hmm. I think that you do that exceptionally well in your writing. So um, thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you. It's it's really no wonder to me why this book was um, shortlisted for for the awards that it was for the Robert Croach and the Stephen G. Stephenson. It's a beautiful book. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that I always sort of want to talk about a little bit more with your poetry, and I believe we sort of had this conversation before about the personal elements mm -hmm. that come into each and every poem and sort of um, how much you allow a poem to be authentic and true to your real life and maybe mm -hmm. what sort of things you put away. Because like when I read this poem, I imagine it in, in two, it's the italics on the page that someone has suggested to you that you should practice laughing mm -hmm. and you should practice lighting up. And I'm wondering, is that something that... A, actually did happen to you and then maybe if you can talk a little bit more mm -hmm. about how much authenticity you try to bring into every poem that you write yeah that's I, I love this question in this case I think it really is coming from me like I'm the one who say who's saying I say I'm trying to practice oh. laughing lightening mm -hmm. up so the italics are about me trying to say that to someone else and this connects back mm -hmm. to what we were saying earlier about what I learned from reading my first book and how it got old to always be a downer like I had tried very hard in One Crow Sorrow to give, um, to give something affirming. So it wasn't like full of despair. It wasn't a book about despair, but it was heavy. And so I mm -hmm. learned something about what it feels like to always be giving someone something heavy. Mm -hmm. So that's what this poem is about. That's what those opening lines are about. It's my own effort to laugh and lighten mm -hmm. up for the sake of other people initially. So... I feel like I came to that desire for a more sort of uh, round artistic practice out of wanting to give more to the reader. And now it's becoming, I wrote this poem probably, I feel like it's probably been close to 10 years, maybe wow. not that long ago. Hmm. And, um, and now I think I don't have the same struggle. Like I've, I've lightened up a lot. I like to right, a lot. Right. Um, but yeah, so to go back to your question about authenticity, I think I am, I, there's a way that the question of fiction and nonfiction is not as central to me in poetry as it is in prose. In prose, I'm always either writing fiction or nonfiction, or, you know, in fiction, I have some room to use something that actually happened, but I'm presenting it as fiction. In poetry, I will sometimes make something fictional, make it a, a small piece of of the poem fictional like in a poem like um what is this poem the one where i'm return on page 16 mm. which starts signs of what's leaving bruised apples in the grass sunflowers mm. out back i remember in this poem in particular that there are one or two images here that are fictitious like that i just invented to make the line work so mm -hmm. that sort of thing mm -hmm. i'm comfortable doing with poem but at the level of like what's the emotional Reality. What's the emotional um, sort of through line, or what's what's being worked out? Those things are mine when I'm right. writing poetry. I mean, that might change in the future. By September, I might not be single. I might not be doing that <laughs> in my poems anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but but I that's yeah. I'm really invested in um, when I'm writing poems, really working out things about my life. That's the kind of poet I am. 
So I have this, it's a new, it's a new experience for me, but it relates to parenting, actually. Mm -hmm. I feel like some of the things that are starting to happen in this part of life are not only mine. And that Mm. is where I come from with these, with the poems that I'm talking about is, is they're not just mine to share. So uh, we need to be, I need to be much more aware of that or careful, careful about those other people's feelings. And in some ways I feel like I've had a kind of cheat like people say right as if your parents are dead like my parents are legit dead (laughs) what privilege you're living with Lisa (laughs) (laughs) but it means that I'm not filtering like I don't have to consider the the feelings of my parents when I want to write something and and but I do with my children so it's a kind of new thing for me Mm. to have my part of my real material that I'm writing through be something mm-hmm. where there are boundaries around. Yeah, there are boundaries. Yeah. There's always yeah. boundaries. Yeah. Uh, my, my belief is there are always a few boundaries. Of course there are, yeah. Yes. I don't mean to say that I was boundaryless. <laughs> no, no, I was not. No, no. Yeah. I was looking at Matthew when I said that. Well, I, have, I have boundaries. There are things that you have to, like, put at least a bottle you of wine into. You have to deal that other, to, like, yeah. the other layer. Oh, yeah. Like, really, someone without... Effective boundaries couldn't make hummus that's this good. No, I know. So, <laughs> you, need, you need boundaries to make hummus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the first thing that Bon Appetit recommend, recommends. It's like they're boundaries because you need to like you know put everything in and then you have to right. slowly pour in the olive oil. Like it's a very mm. like there is a there are steps and like mm. that's isn't this mm-hmm. kind of the idea around making a perfect pot of tea? Like in order to make a perfect pot of tea, you have to sort of first sort of resolve your life and then you can make mm. a perfect pot of tea. <laughs> Tea, hummus, and poetry. Oh, I'm just thinking. That's like, the why? name of my next collection. Nobody <laughs> steal it. You can say that, but did you put copyright? Copyright. copyright. There we go. Perfect. All right. Um, where did I want to go? Well, there was a bunch of great thoughts that Lisa had. Um, Lisa, drink more wine. Yeah. <laughs> We're not alcohol pushers, but like you know, now you're thirsty. It is called you Let's Get Lit. Yeah, and I think Ran and I are getting lit. No, I'm and, not. Oh, okay, I'm getting lit. Um, I'm finding a bunch of lit and like inspiration and everything. Very yeah. lit. Yeah, I really legitimately just got that. <laughs> you didn't you want, get it. Do you want no? us to edit it okay. out now? The or? name of the poetry podcast is Let's Get Lit. Yeah, no, she, she got it Literature. Now. Yeah. Well, that took Lit. me all this time until now. Oh, I it's hope like, everybody it's else gets no, no, it's, it's, it's the, it's the I hope everybody else gets it and they're like, oh, they're, you know, the doing the October so, date a little early. You no. too can be a Vanny scholar. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to avoid memes. And well, we thought it was really clear. I think it's no, oh, oh, it's clear. It's just, it's, it's just it's Lisa. Lisa. Sorry, and Lisa. also, like, you come to it different ways. Like, Lisa came in about an hour ago and we're like, this podcast, she by the way, is called... She didn't see it written called, down. Yeah, she this is called Let's down. Get Lit, where other people have, like, why is it called Let's Get Lit? Whereas I, I was focusing on the wine. Yeah, yeah because it, the, the second part of the title is The Drunk Poetry Podcast, and as soon as she walked in the door, we were like, here's your wine! Yeah, we just we focused right. too much on the Well, the you know. Other stuff. Um, All right. I have one deep dive mm-hmm. into some poetry that, like... Maybe this is, like, the harder question that we'll edit out later. Um, But I was noticing some interesting connections between different poems when it came to this discussion about weight. Hmm. Um, And in one poem that's particularly called Birth Weight, Mm -hmm. um, you write, What a thing weighs distinguishes it from what it isn't, tells us what we are, are not. And then in The Ascension, you write... Christ, at the end of his life, was heavier than he'd ever been. And you refer to that weight as the difficult knowledge that the body is holding. And I'm wondering if there's a connection there, or if you're always kind of tipping the scales towards the things that we know and learn, or if you even just want to talk a little bit more about the Christ metaphor. Hmm. Yeah, I think, I think, so there's a lot there and I think it connects to the poem I just read Lightening Up which mm-hmm. is about mm-hmm. a sort of aspiration to um, something other than that difficult knowledge I think the Christ metaphor for me I mean it comes up sort of autobiographically I come by it honestly my dad was a was a pastor in an evangelical church and then died when I was quite young so that was a really good sort of like compression of mm. um, questions about 
um, what I was going to think about all of that. And the thing about the Christ metaphor, the um, so the poem you're talking about is the Ascension, which is on page eleven. So I'm just going to turn there so I can. This is so great. This is like what you do in church, legitimately. Yeah. Let's turn to <laughs> the page where the verses. Everyone turn to the page and say yes. Yes. So. Yeah, so here the the poem is all about density and what sinks and what rises. Mm-hmm. And I had the idea in this poem, I, I wanted to kind of subvert the idea um, because Christ is a, a figure who is supposed to be at the center of um, understanding all the suffering of the world. Mm-hmm. That's what Christ on the cross represents in in Christianity, and so I wanted to kind of um, can I swear on this podcast? Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to fuck with the idea that you could do that and then like rot, lift off into the sky. That seemed just just working on the level of like figurative consistency and metaphorical consistency mm-hmm. that didn't mm-hmm. seem right. And so I wanted to make him try to rise, and then when he hits the limits of the Earth's atmosphere, he has to fall back down to earth, like mm-hmm. precipitate back down to earth, mm-hmm. because he can take because he's been the line is he has been changed by love. His needs have grown too human. So I want to take mm-hmm. that idea I'd been given as a child that that myth, that really sort of resonant myth that Christ is equally human and divine, and say mm-hmm. if that's how you come into it, and then you actually love, you're that's going to change. You're, you're going mm-hmm. to become. Um, you're going to hold that difficult knowledge of what suffering is, so that's going to bring you back down to earth. So that's what I was trying to do with this poem. Um, So then is there any sort of way that you connect that with the other weights that you're using in different poems? Or um, like, I mean, or is it just Matthew that... It's just me that like notices things like. Well, I think I'm. I'm I think I'm probably. I probably think about wait. I think about that. I was trying to articulate this once, and I think I'm not a poet who goes to a. At least, maybe in September I will be. <laughs> Until now, I'm not <laughs> historically. There's a three month period where you will change. <laughs> I feel like you will also ascend. I read this amazing then... book written by a Jesuit when I was 14 that that had this line that was like saying like. It was about people seeing each other. It's like every single time you've changed. And so the line was something like, don't approach me as if you know me. Study my hands and voice and face for the signs of change, for it is certain that I have changed like every time that you encounter a person. And so hmm. th- this is maybe the reason I every keep saying. Every time. Yes. Yes. I've, mm-hmm. Oh, and the line is something like I've suffered and prayed and I'm different because it's a Jesuit. And so my my thinking is that by September, I legitimately could be a different poet. <laughs> But, yeah, but you're right, you could be. Yes, you legitimately could I really be. Could. I think that's, yes. That's a, yes. No, that's a significant amount mm-hmm. of development. I'm not going to go through three months lightly. To go back to the metaphor you're in, inquiring about. Yeah. What a, like, a, a boring way to like, experience those three months if like, nothing changed. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, right. I want to take us in a, a different direction to kind of view, um, you know, we've had a chance to get to know you and like as as the listener yes um and understand how you view personality types and that's always fun and uh, we've talked a little bit about your your poetry um and how you come to write it and some of the aspects that are involved in it um but now we kind of want to talk about the larger value and context of poetry to mm-hmm. um people who are outside of it or mm-hmm. you know who don't even like come to it just kind of like yeah. a why do we still write poetry? Yeah. Why does poetry still exist? Because like we as poets and people who appreciate poetry all kind of understand this, but I think there's a reason this exists in a physical book that people can pick up and what they're kind of going to get away from it. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about your collection is that it, it, it says in it that the collection focuses on spirit, ethics, and how to live well. And so I'm kind of fascinated by that. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I'm wondering, you know, is that one of the kind of the great values of reading poetry for you and, you know, how to learn to live well? And so what, what do you sort of hope that people can learn from what they're reading in mm-hmm. that direction? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I wonder, as you're talking, if we don't all in some way 
work at the site of entry when it comes to poetry. So some people inherit poetry because their parents read poetry, but a lot of us come in at some point through a window or a different door. And for me, it was, I discovered Alden Nolan on the shelf of my high school library, and I read these poems that blew my mind. I was 14 years old, and I could not believe it was possible to actually talk out loud about some of the things I was trying to work through internally. Mm-hmm. I just thought those things were separate, <laughs> like mm-hmm. the, the world out mm-hmm. here hummed along like this, and then there was my internal experience. And so I think for me, I've always been really invested in writing something that anybody could access. So um, the thinking in my poetry is at, for me, it's at a high level. <laughs> for everybody, for me, it's at a high level. I'm not like dumbing down the thinking, but I'm very interested in language being accessible so that anybody who isn't already living in that house can come into it. And I wonder if that's not related to how you get in in the first place. And probably not for everybody, but for me, I think I think of myself as a poet as owing something to everybody outside the house. It's like I'm almost more interested in those people than I am in other poets. Like I know poets are the ones who will read the work and really see everything that's happening in it. But for me, poetry is about trying to live well because my entry to poetry was like an effort to stay alive, really. Mm -hmm. was when I, in that opening poem that I read, Mm -hmm. uh, the title poem, when I say... um, it was an age at which much of what we did passed as pleasure, but it was actually terror. Or which the phone that rang in a room where I was trying to die without technically killing myself. Like, this is highly autobiographical. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think, for me, poetry was a site of... And it continues to be all the time. I'm doing a PhD and I'm reading things all the time. And poetry is the thing that can actually like blast through all of the confusion and offer something that's like an acute ontological uh, clarity it just has that kind of capacity and so I think I'm I'm interested in poetry precisely as a kind of technology we have developed for for thinking outside of questions of how to make a living or how, you know all those sort of practical questions thinking about how to live in a, in a deeper sense in a spiritual sense like what is it that we're doing and why? Those are the kinds of questions that for me are at the heart of what I'm always up to. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. an answer to what you were <laughs> asking. It is. I, w- well, I wanted like your mm-hmm. top 10 mm-hmm. tips. How to live well. Or like the first one is like potatoes. Dr. Lisa Martin. Potatoes. Yeah, do- Dr. Lisa Dr. Martin. Lisa yeah. Martin. Yeah. Almost. I'm a pre-doctor. Yeah. <laughs> Pre-Dr. Lisa Martin. Pre-doctor. When I, I mean, see her on the street, I'm going to be like, hi, pre-doctor Lisa. I mean, is Dr. Phil a doctor? All Martin. these people? I think oh, I'm yeah. going to get some doctor, some doctor. Which I had at the time that this poem takes place, that first poem, I definitely was wearing a whole Doc Martens, so it's really a circle. All life is a circle. I love the Doc Martens. The thing that I kind of want to ask about, and like part of this has a lot to do with the essay I read of yours recently that was published on the New Quarterly, The the Good Mm -hmm. Death, which people have to pay to read now which they should (laughs) Um, but it's this idea about you being vulnerable with the reader and asking then that the reader also is vulnerable Mm -hmm. and I wonder if that's like a a clear intention in a lot of the things that you write Yeah, and so I think that there's Mm. there's a way that I feel like everybody, every single one of us this is what I do when I teach when I teach I rely on the belief that that's true of everyone about a different about a different thing. Like we all know something that nobody else knows, and we need to figure out what that is. Like we have to, and for me, it's kind of obvious. But if you don't have anything that dramatic, it's sometimes harder to figure out. Like what is it that you have? <laughs> what is it that you know that's different from what other people know? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I personally have a kind of responsibility <laughs> to other people to say, like, hey, like we're gonna 
die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, we all know this, but, like, we're going to die. But, right? But yeah. then at the same time, I feel like the fact that I am, I've, I've decided to refuse to be crushed by it. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and that's shown me how much happiness is available, how much joy is available at the same time as it's a fact that it will all be taken <laughs> in its time <laughs> but that there's a that those things are active simultaneously like I think I get that in my body in a way that you don't if you haven't had to grieve it mm-hmm. in your yeah. body yeah. and so yeah. I think that the essay is me asking that vulnerability of people absolutely and trying to kind of narratively establish a ground to imagine something for the reader to imagine something that they haven't directly experienced mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then just and yeah to kind of invite i think at that the end of that essay is a kind of invitation to sort of like depending on where you're sitting it could be an invitation to get it to get that things will die or on the other hand i think maybe the great call of that essay is to like believe that things can live yeah. like mm-hmm. yeah. to ask for love still to believe that things can return yeah and I think that mm-hmm. that is how I kind of felt at the end that it was just this love that we should be asking for that like that fear or hesitation that kind of comes from accepting the, the care and the love that we can kind of get from things and um, I think that's the message that I read in, in the book mm-hmm. yeah I, and mm-hmm. I so in that way I think that there's a there's a sense that my the acuteness of my vocation as <laughs> my sense of vocation as a writer has kind of flipped when I was 23 it was like we need more cultural space for grief. That was what I felt like I needed to do. And now it's like people really need to know that you can still like have joy or thrive or like want to do those things. So that's okay to want to do those mm. things. And I feel like I'm kind of uniquely positioned to say that because it's sort of autobiographically obvious that I'm not tuned out to the risks. Yeah. <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. But yeah. so that feels more urgent to me. It's now. okay to lighten up. It's okay to lighten up. That yeah. feels a lot more urgent to me because mm. I feel like so many people who are intelligent and gifted and wise and have a form of this knowledge that I was talking about a moment ago, like the thing that you alone know, people people like that who have some kind of sensitivity, maybe the kind of person who would cry for an hour realizing that people die, those people are getting crushed right now. Yeah, <laughs> They're just going down because they care a great deal. And I feel like that it's important to say that you can negotiate your own <laughs> your own joy as one of the things that you're that you're trying to sort out and even that that's critical to all the other forms of work you know yeah. like making more cultural space for grief is something you could only do on the back of your own joy to be yeah. honest yeah so um, Lisa I think what we're gonna do now is we're gonna ask you one final question for the uh, for the evening and then we'll have you lead us out of the podcast with a poem um so the poem that we want you to to read to us to to lead everybody out is a poem called what i believe now about us then and both matthew and i were really um deeply moved by that poem but you know throughout the context of this of this discussion and the, con- the, the title of the poem of, of the book is Believing is Not the Same as Being Saved. So our, our question to you is, how has poetry saved you, mm. or do you just believe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. I think I, I think I just believe. I think that this book is getting marketed with this line that there's a, that the collection is imbued with the light of a, an enduring of troubled right. faith. And I think that the, the kind of enduring faith that I have is actually about the kind of thing that like the act of turning up to the page and writing a poem is about it's like I think one of the ways that poetry has saved me is not not by you know having a set of literary conventions (laughs) or um, a, a, a canon or anything like that but just being a thing that people do with the world (laughs) so it's it's art you know it's like any kind of art it's just people keep on out of all the things that are brutal and overwhelming and incapacitating and um, structurally so much bigger than we alone can change people keep on making things and people keep on making beautiful things and people keep on making things that are for other people and I think that 
that is, as long as we're doing that, as long as we're involved in that conversation and in that, those, those reciprocal acts, um, I believe in that as a thing that um, kind of you know, proves that there's a way to go forward. So it's like, it's not, it's, it's hope, but it's not mm-hmm. hope in the abstract. It's a way of going forward. So I think that that's, yeah, I think I believe it. And I think I know I won't be saved. I mean, I haven't. Uh-huh. There's so many times I've not been saved. <laughs> and there's, there's so many times coming where I will not be saved. And I think that the, the crucial thing is to find a way to go forward. And I think this is an interesting thing about lifespan development. It was poetry for a long time. And increasingly for me, it's, it's love. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's relationship. It's other people. So I think that for me, poetry um, kind of was like a life raft for a long time and I figured out that um, it's even better to kind of like be in a fleet of people in life rafts <laughs> you know that that's kind of the, the, yeah. the best thing yeah mm. but it does feel like different people have different roles and I think for me like believing is my role in a way mm. there are other poets where what they're giving isn't going to be that and we need that too and I think, yeah, for me, that's probably what I'm, what I'm piping up about most. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder, too, in the sense that you know you're on the believing end, but does being saved happen at the very end of a life or a narrative? Mm-hmm. You know, like if if we're saved now, then what's the point of continuing to believe or yeah. you know? Yeah, well, I, you know, the U of A Press came up with this cover that I could never have dreamed into existence that just feels, like, exactly perfect to me. It's, like, this little life preserver. And mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great cover. Right? And, and what it yeah. suggests is, like, peril. Like, you've gone overboard if you need a life preserver. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you can get... But someone can throw you one. And so that's a poem. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or can a poem can be that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. All right. Would you like to uh, to read a final poem for us this Let's evening as we move into the September fall? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I want to I want to imagine that this poem is being listened to in the fall because yes. it'll be different then. Yes, it will. What I believe now about us then, or see. The morning of your surgery, I drive across the river, accepting my part in it. How fueled I am by what we now know, without doubt, can't last. The awful beauty of exhaust rising in air exactly like exhaled breath, yet also instead of breath. Today you will be healed by being gently harmed, and I can be transfused by what rises cloud-like from poison, side-lit by the slowly rising winter sun. Fog and exhaust, cloud and breath stretched thin as the soft cotton plug my little girl pulled last night from a bottle of vitamin C, while you and I fought quietly like adults, pretending not to fight. This quiet itself a gesture to other wounds, our arms marked back then by soft violence, thin sinking of nails in each other's flesh, pinch me, we said, so I know I'm real. My girl knows what's real, her belief. Last night we fought while she imagined thin white cotton into bits, which were not, but would become, these clouds, this bridge, and spread the pieces wide as wings on the lid of her toy box. Look, she said last night, her bright wild voice, her joy tinctured by viral confusion, grown-up sorrow. Sure enough, bits of fog drift now over the bridge. Butterfly, she exhaled. And I awoke in the night with your sore throat, a softened heart. No need to draw blood to prove this heart. You, the broken pieces, exist. Your pain was always real. Believe me, what exhausts us most, what wastes us, can't last. The torn cotton already though we couldn't see it then, was the softly torn moons, fingernails in our flesh, was this fog that would one day rise, lit by winter sun, 
this bridge. Our wings were always wide and white, clouds fused with exhaust, fog always sinking, being lifted. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that last line is so um, evocative, even of everything with, we've been talking about this evening, you know, of always sinking and being lifted yeah. at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah. again, beautiful such a beautiful, parallels. yeah, beautiful parallels, paradoxes. Um, just a, a stunning piece of a stunning collection of poetry thank yeah. you so much thank you yeah so in that last All moment right. that we've been talking to Lisa Martin about her collection the leading is not the same as being saved mm-hmm. out through the University of Alberta Press um, something that's cheap enough to buy <laughs> <laughs> and good enough to enjoy so yes hopefully you know you go through this podcast again and I do, yeah. And I do feel like this is a collection that you can, as fall is coming, sit beside a fire mm-hmm. with a glass of wine or a glass of tea and just immerse yourself in. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I hope that I hope that people do that. Yeah, and I yeah. find fall, like at least from the the post student mm-hmm. age, was always that good. <laughs> revival period or that time to kind of look yeah. back or there's something new that was going on well, so I mean it yeah is. and the hibernating time for mm-hmm. me for me fall is that hibernating time where I can close in on myself and sit with sit with something for a little while yeah the change yeah. of the seasons is a yeah. good time to be retrospective yes on our lives so yes. thank you so much Lisa for joining us for this and maybe you know not drinking enough wine <laughs> no but she still, drank less than we did she what? did we're embarrassed <laughs> well she had to read poems yeah and we didn't have to Lisa did talk a lot more and we just didn't. <laughs> that should be the goal for every podcast that we just kind of sit here and be. drink and yeah, well. you guide things so yeah. yeah I guess every thank you to everyone yes. for tuning in to Let's Get Lit and Lisa to jo- for joining us you know yes. Doug at the sound control yes and uh, and yeah. Lisa, thank Lisa you. again, and Lisa again, <laughs> and a big round of applause and like a, a cheers. Let's do a cheers. Yes, a to cheers. sign off, a to cheers. Sign-